During Lent, we are preaching this sermon series called God's Odd Benedictions about Jesus' Beatitudes. I'm going to suggest that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, is one example of the kind of person Jesus is talking about in today's Beatitude. And looking ahead in worship, our closing hymn was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote it as a Christmas gift, a poem to his 20-year-old fiancée at the time in December of 1944 his last Christmas. He was executed at Flossenburg concentration camp in April of 1945, so I hope you will attend to the beautiful words and music of that hymn and notice the worship note that's at the end of your bulletin this morning. So the scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 5. Jesus went up to the mountain, he sat down and he taught his disciples. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus launches the most famous sermon in history with eight pithy bullet points, which for 1,500 years, the church has called the Beatitudes because each of them begins with the Latin word beati, which means happy or blessed. This is the church of the Beatitudes on the Sea of Galilee. What shape is it built in? Thank you. Why? Eight Beatitudes. Thank you. The church calls them the Beatitudes. I call them God's odd benedictions because they are so unexpected and so paradoxical and so counterintuitive. God says, or Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he says. Blessed are the sad, he says. Happy are the sad, says Jesus, using a blatant oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus. Really? The poor and the sad and the meek don't ha look happy to me. Today, of course, we come to the fourth of those bullet points, and this is one of the less odd of God's odd benedictions. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, says Jesus, for they will be filled. This one makes sense to us. We get this one. Of course, Jesus would love the righteous. Of course, God would bless them. But that's not exactly what he says, or at least not all that he says. He doesn't say, blessed are the righteous. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It's not enough to be righteous. You have to be desperate for it. You have to ache for it. You have to be one of those people who feel a, a visceral, existential, almost carnal ache at the center of their being because that's what hunger is, right? And a yawning emptiness at the center of our bodies. Thirst is an urgent scraping at the back of the throat a wasting away of the vitalities that sustain the organism. Nothing else can be sought until bread and water are had. Without them, we die. And for the kind of people Jesus is talking about here, righteousness is such a commodity. It's like bread and water and oxygen. Without it, we die. The psalmist cries out, God, oh God, you are my God. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and barren land where no water is. And so these kind of folk just ache when they notice that 
ruthless, malevolent despots killed tens of thousands of people in places like Gaza and Ukraine. 30,000 dead people in Gaza, the exact same number as the number of Ukrainian soldiers who are dead. Those tens of thousands of bereft but brave Russians who mourned Alexei Navalny in Moscow on Friday, unbelievable. Peace in Ukraine, they shouted, freedom for Russia. That Moscow neighborhood was crawling with busloads, literally busloads of police. But prison be damned, they had a hunger and thirst for justice and a deep anger against totalitarianism. We ache when we see what's going on on the southern border. And when we stop to consider, with both gratitude and dismay, that we happily inhabit a land most of the rest of the world is desperate to get to. And we don't know what to do about this problem. It's an impossible conundrum. But those who hunger and thirst after righteousness do what they can to help those who are in need. Yesterday, a bunch of us went down to Altgeld Gardens, in the far south side of Chicago, as far south as you can go and still be in Chicago, 130th Street. We went there for the first lettuce harvest of the Bowen Vertical Garden. A bunch of us went, Kathy went, I went, Sarah went, Elizabeth went, George went, Margot and Mark and Steve Bowen went. Senator Durbin was there. The Illinois Lieutenant Governor was there. Four acres worth of lettuce out of a 500 square foot container a near miracle of 21st century technology. Four acres, putting a lonely green oasis in the middle of this sprawling drab food desert. You did that. Kenilworth Union Church did that. 675 Kenilworth Union families gave that million dollar gift so there could be a lonely green oasis in that food desert because you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such a gratifying day. Emmett Till turned 14 years of age in 1955. Emmett Till was also from the south side of Chicago. But in August of 1955, he went to visit relatives in the Mississippi Delta. And there, they say, he flirted with a 21-year-old white woman. Companions who were with him dispute that rumor. But in any case, he was tortured and lynched for that alleged indiscretion. Emmett's mother famously left his casket open at the funeral so that the whole world could see what hate can do. And people say that Emmett Till changed America's mind about what was going on, especially in the South, all over the country, but especially in the South. Most Americans decided then that Mississippi was guilty as charged. 1955, the same year that Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Timothy Tyson teaches history at the University of North Carolina and Duke University. In 2017, he wrote a book called The Blood of Emmett Till, where he writes, quote, America has had it enough of the Eisenhower administration's long, languid gaze down the green fairways of indifference. I love that vivid image, that vivid country club image, the green fairways of indifference. After Emmett Till, that was no longer acceptable in America, the green fairways 
of indifference. Jimmy Carter tells about something else that happened in 1955, the same year as Rosa Parks, the same year as Emmett Till. Some friends of Jimmy came to see him at his office in Plains, Georgia. They were representing the White Citizens Council of Plains, Georgia, a benign version of the Ku Klux Klan. And they'd come to tell Mr. Carter that he was the only businessman in Plains, Georgia, who had fa failed to pay his $5 dues in 1955. And they warned him that there might be severe repercussions for his peanut farming business if he failed to pay his $5. So Jimmy Carter took a $5 bill out of his wallet and said, I will sooner flush this down the toilet than give it to you. Because lifelong he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. His lifelong causes Habitat for Humanity, Peace in Palestine. No wonder he only served one term in the White House. He was too good for us. We didn't deserve him. Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Two days later, two days, German pastor, German Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer broadcast a speech over the radio in which he rebuked the German people for their enormous historic mistake. He warned them that quickly, easily, a Führer can become a Wehrführer. A Führer can become a Wehrführer. A leader can be a misleader. He warned them passionately never to merge their patriotism for their homeland with their faith in God. Those two don't belong together. God and country ain't one word, as somebody says. Two days into Hitler's regime, with amazingly prescient vision, he predicted the catastrophic Holocaust that was being engineered even as he spoke. Meanwhile, almost every one of his Lutheran ministerial colleagues was swearing an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler, malice incarnate. Dr. Bonhoeffer couldn't believe his eyes. Look at him. Look how Teutonic he is. In the dictionary, under Arian, there is a photograph of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He could have so easily fit in. Why did he have to open his big mouth? His father was a prominent psychiatrist in Berlin, came from a beloved and renowned family in the city. He had an MDiv, a PhD, a pulpit, and a school. He could have fit in. Why did he have to speak? Well, you know the answer to that because he had a hunger for justice and a thirst for righteousness. From his first sermon till his last, he preached his strict and vig rigorous truth. Only those who speak out for the Jews, he said, only those who speak out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chant. Yes? Now, I don't know if I can speak truth to power like Alexei Navalny and Dietrich von Hofer, but I can at least try to reach up to their towering statue because I want to hunger and thirst after righteousness too.